First Kings chapter seven, uh, we have been uh, with King Solomon, who's now established in power, uh, wisest man who ever lived. And uh, he is, we're in the middle of the description of the, uh, of the construction of the temple, although, uh, uh, although we're going to take that about 10 or 12 verses now where he's going to describe the describe the construction of a few other things as well. We read last week at the very conclusion that the building of the temple, it says in first Kings six thirty eight took seven years in building. Um, chapter 7, verse 1 says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Now, uh, some Bible commentators uh, and preachers will, uh, will uh, teach here that uh, this is apparently the beginning of his pride coming in, which is eventually will be his downfall. Why does he spend almost twice as long on his own house um, as he does uh, on God's temple? Uh, you know, the Bible says the Bible says that um, love believes all things. And last Sunday uh, morning, uh, we read about the Pharisees um, and how they. Uh, looked around to find fault, and so important that we give the benefit of the doubt to to everyone, including Solomon here. Now, it could be uh, that uh, this is not Solomon egomaniac. It could be that it was just his his house was uh, built over time, uh, but there also was not the same urgency. I mean, the temple there was just. The really the sense we got to get the temple up. We want to worship God, but um, it speaks here uh, in, in in verse one uh, that Solomon's uh, house took thirteen years. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits. Now remember, a cubit is a foot and a half, so that's one hundred and fifty feet. Its width was 50 cubits, 75 feet. Its height was 45 cubits, 45 feet, um, with rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Now, uh, remember from last week, last couple of weeks, Lebanon, just to the north of Israel, was um, famous for its cedar forests at the time, uh, and uh, so this is an enormous building here. It's 11,250 feet uh, and it's 45 feet high. I mean, think of a four-story house with uh, 10 feet uh, each, approximately 10 feet each uh, floor. This is a, a, a height of a four or five-story height, very, very tall. Uh, but in addition to that, it's 11,250 feet. The Longwood Hall, which we meet on Sunday morning, is 3,000 feet. And so you're talking about four, about four times that size. Um, a large room and probably for royal uh, banquets and companies and foreign dignitaries. Uh, we uh, People were visiting Solomon. We've already read how uh, people came to pay tribute to Solomon um, from all over the world, and we'll be reading that again. But um, this was a, this building would have been large enough to do that. It says, of, but you walk into this building and its pillars were made out of cedar. So the idea is, uh, the imagery is you almost feel like you're in a cedar forest when you're in it. Uh, so there you have it. Verse three, and it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows and window and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars. 
its length was 50 cubits and its width uh, 13 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of, uh, of them. So we're going to be in a lot of detail here. Uh, God is into the detail. He has every hair on your head numbered. And so uh, we're going to be reading about some hair here, hair on a head. Uh, verse seven, then he made a hall for the throne, the hall for judgment, where he might judge and it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Now, remember cedar, that was uh, a luxury at the time. Uh, cedar is hard to, to rot, and it uh, lasts a really long time. Of course, it's beautiful as well. And Hall of Judgment, remember, uh, unlike the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of another country, uh, cases actually went to the king for judgment. We've already seen that uh, in the the two uh, harlots who came to Solomon um, with the baby. And so uh, uh, it, there was a hall of judgment that he made as well. Verse eight, and the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. And so uh, his wife, first wife, lived in another house. Uh, and so that was not unusual for that time. All these, meaning all these different houses, the house of the force of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the hall of judgment, all of these uh, were made of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation of the eaves and also on the outside of the court. So when it says costly stone, it's, it's not talking here of rubies and emeralds and diamonds because it's, it says, you, you know, trimmed with saws, can't, can't trim a diamond with a saw. Uh, what this is talking about is that um, they a, a lot of time was made in these particular homes uh, on each stone, and they were cut to side, they were trimmed, and just a lot of intricate detail. And for that reason, they were costly because of the amount of time that was put on them. The foundation was of costly stone, large stone, some 10 cubits and some eight cubits. I mean, that's a big old stone, 15 feet. I mean, think about that. That is a big block. Uh, uh, that's a, about a story and a half, or in some houses, two stories. Uh, and these were all being put uh, together. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now, verse 13, King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre. A bronze worker, he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And so this is a master craftsman. You know, again, some, some pastors and commentators will make something of the fact that he was half Jewish. He says he came from the tribe of, of, of Nathali, and then his father was a man of Tyre. Tyre is worship pagan gods. And so some commentators will, will also say this, uh, we'll also make make a comparison uh, to the uh, to to the master craftsman who Moses, uh, five hundred years before, four or five hundred years before, had used to make the tabernacle. Who was a full blooded Jew, and uh, here again you see Solomon, the beginning of his decline. Again, I don't think we can do that. Uh, I gave uh, a message here a couple weeks ago how Hiram loved David and how it's important for us not to always to be assuming uh, the world is an enemy. And uh, so, again, love believes all things. 
It, and it's wonderful here to see the role of people as we did when the tabernacle was built of someone who is gifted with, uh, with physical abilities as opposed to someone who's a, a gifted teacher or a, and works in uh, a gifted musician. Uh, so important in the body of Christ are those who uh, are, are just gifted physically. And, 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 and so in the year 2021, you also have uh, the importance of people just gifted in technology, so much a part of the body of Christ. Uh, the book of First uh, uh, Corinthians uh, uh, chapters 12 and 14, uh, I think, believe it's 14, which speaks of, uh, you know, one of you is an eye, another is an ear, another is a leg, another is a hand, another is a mouth, and, and all of them are necessary uh, for a, a healthy church and, and for just the expansion and growth of the kingdom of God. It's, and now he gets back to the temple it says, uh, so at the, end of, at the end of chapter six, it does say he, he was seven years uh, in building the temple, takes a small hiatus there for 14 verses in chapter seven and goes back to the temple. He, he built two, uh, he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze he set on the tops of the pillars the height of one capital was five cubits the height of the other capital was five cubits he made a lattice network with reeds of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital so he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capitals. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. So a capital uh, you, is that you, a lot of times it's, it's that square part on the top of the pillar that attaches to the ceiling. Uh, and that's what a capital is. And so it was surrounded uh, by things like pomegranates, things like lilies. Verse 20, the capitals of the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex sur surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple, he set up the a pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. And so these pillars, I guess, are at the uh, towards the entrance of the temple area, and uh, each of them had a name, Jachin, which means in Hebrew, he shall establish Boaz. Uh, in him is strength. And uh, uh, again, the importance of the name, just knowing, knowing God is he who establishes us. And also he is in him is strength. I, I can't really get enough of uh, Psalm 90. I, I go back to it a lot. The end of uh, Psalm 90 uh, says this, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And, and so uh, one of these pillars, he shall establish. Yes, he does. He will establish the work of your hands. Patience is needed, though. Uh, we're constantly... Um, admonished in the Bible to, to be patient uh, with the Lord. He's, he's never behind time. He's never behind. He's always on time, never behind. And so uh, the verse 22 says the tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies. So the work of the pillars was finished. 
Verse 23, and he made the sea of cast bronze. Now, what in the world is that? A sea of cast bronze. It's an, well, what is going to be described here is an enormous pool made out of bronze. Uh, it's actually the, the bottom of the pool is actually where the, the rim of the pool is seven feet above the ground. And so there was some way for the, uh, to, for the entrance of this thing. It was a, a perfect, perfectly round. It's called a C because S, S E A, because it was huge and it was used for, uh, uh, at least two reasons. One, if you look in the book of um, what, Exodus, Exodus and Leviticus, um, those books, you would have the requirements of washings, priests, particularly in, in, in Leviticus, priests being required to wash prior to their priestly service. It was a, um, a, a kind of a baptism, but um, a cleansing for them. And uh, it, it, it's, it's useful. We, we never want to lose sight of the fact that uh, as we go through the Old Testament of what Christ has fulfilled for us, that um, not it says in the book of Hebrews that uh, we can go with bold assurance into the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Uh, we don't want it. This is why I always am any, uh, any opportunity to get read the Old Testament because what Jesus did for us, we're, we're no longer required to do these baptisms. We're no longer required to do the animal sacrifices that the priests had to do to go into the presence of God. All of it has been fulfilled in Christ. But there was this requirement in the Old Testament of the priest doing the, uh, the, the washing before going into service. But as well, uh, probably what this gigantic bronze pool was used for, it fit 11,500 gallons in it, uh, was the... The, the altar of sacrifice where, where animals were slaughtered uh, or animals were slaughtered and, and taken in, it, that's a bloody business and, and priests would need to uh, have a place to wash in there. So it's probably also for that purpose uh, as well. Tradition has it that it had faucets and things like that and ways to drain. Uh, but uh, uh this thing is so massive, it's um, about 30 tons. It was so massive that uh, 400, 300, 400 years later, when uh, after a long spiritual decline by Israel and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came in, uh, you can read that he had to break this thing up. It was just so massive, he could not transport it. So they broke it up and took it back to Babylon. So anyway, let's 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 read about this C S E A. He made a the C of uh, of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, that's seven and a half feet, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. That's forty five feet. It was the circumference of it was uh, 45 feet long. Below its brim were ornamental uh, buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental bu uh, buds were cast in two rows. When it was cast, it stood on 12 oxen. So this is really cool. Uh, this must have been quite a sight. This thing's a, uh, a big deal. There's a lot of ink that is going to be dedicated to describing this thing, but you can only imagine uh, walking in, there's a massive bronze pool held up by 12 bronze oxen, which were uh, encircling all around. Three look towards the north, three look towards the west, three looking towards the south, three looking towards the east. The sea was set upon them and all their backs pointed inward. It was a hand breadth 
thick and it was its brim was uh, shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. That's 11,500 gallons of water. He made 10 carts of bronze. Now, now this is something a little different. Um, he made 10 carts of bronze. Now, what were these carts? Uh, well, if you skip over to verse 38, at the end, it says on each of these 10 carts was a laver. A laver uh, was another little pool. It was like a wash basin for, for washing as, uh, as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 6, I mean, 2 Chronicles 4, 6 said these lavers were used to, uh, uh, to wash again, some of the, the offerings that would go to be sacrificed on the altar of sacrifice. So uh, whatever it was, lambs, bulls, whatever, um, that they would be cut up and they would be washed there uh, to try to minimize the blood and just the yuck <laughs> associated with butchering um, up animals. And so there were 10 of these things and these carts were um, actually were uh, were were mobile. They could be mo moved from place to place. And again, on top of the cart was a a, 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 a wash basin, and and apparently as well um, they it could very well be as well they were used to cart around pieces of. Um, or, or cart around that sacrifice uh, that was a butcher, in other words, a lamb. And so it would be used to, for, for washing the lamb, but then a trans, uh, possibly the actual animal itself, the butchered animal would be, would be uh, transported to the altar of sacrifice. And so then it begins uh, the, a description, verse 27, of these 10 carts of bronze, Four cubits was the length of each. Four cubits were its width. So these are like, these were mobile. They were carted around, um, but that's that's about, they're about six feet by, by six feet, something like that there, and three uh, cubits in height. And this was the design of the cart. So it's going to go into a design of the carts. And um, uh, this may bore some of you, uh, but... Let me tell you, God had a purpose to put this in his word. So there's a reason uh, he would like us to know about this. It says for each of these 10 carts, uh, they had panels, verse 28, and the panels were between the frames, verse 29. On the panels, there were between the frames were lions, uh, oxen, and cherubim. So these, these carts that were wheeled around, on the side of them were lions, oxen, and cherubim, and on the frames was a pedestal on pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver, the laver is remember it's the wash basin, were supports of cast bronze each. Uh, besides each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside diameter, and also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, uh, not round. I mean, I find this amazing You that the temple in and of itself is an astonishing uh, piece of architecture, but also ornamental work. But even outside these, these carts, these instruments used by the priests would have been like, whoa, I mean, this wasn't some wheelbarrow that you go buy at Home Depot. Uh, this thing was really astonishing. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff could very well, as we've mentioned in the past, uh, the, 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 the Holy of Holies and the art and the most and the holy place within the temple is a picture of heaven. Uh, but these also could be 
sort of expressions of of what the angelic host is like doing movement and and supporting and 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 uh ministering to the lord uh, uh as we'll see you see pictures of that for example in the book of ezekiel uh but it could be a picture of that and just the astonishing beauty of an angel and here you have an earthly representation of it and so uh where were we here? <laughs> verse 33. Well, I think we're in verse 32, I think. Under the panels were the four wheels and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheel was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of a cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its flanges and on its pillars, he engraved cherubim, lions, palm trees, wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around. So just an astonishing piece of artwork were each of these carts. Verse 37, thus he made 10 carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure, one shape. Then he made 10 labors, meaning wash brations, of bronze. Each labor contained 40 baths and each labor was four cubits on each of the 10 carts was a labor, was a labor. So there was a wash basin on each cart. He put five carts on the right side of the house, meaning the temple. He put five um, on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the, on the right side of the house, meaning the temple toward the Southeast. Verse 44, Huram, remember he's the master craftsman who is half Jewish, half pagan. I mean, I say that affectionately. It's not an insult. It's a pagan is just someone who, uh, who had no knowledge of the living God. His, his father um, was a pagan. He didn't, uh, so, so Huram finished doing all the work that he was to do for Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, were, which were on the top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to, uh, to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were uh, on the top of the pillar. So I guess the capitals were not square. They were more circular. Verse 43, the 10 carts and 10 labors on the carts, one sea, 12 oxen underneath the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. So verses uh, 45, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. Remember the altar sacrifice, there was a lot of burning going on. They needed shovels uh, for that stuff, and they needed pots just to uh, to carry things away. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was just a lot of work. Being a Levite, being a priest at the temple, a lot of work. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. So these were not ordinary shovels that you buy at Ace, Ace Hardware. Uh, these things were made out of bronze. I hate to think how heavy they were. So don't think, when you think of a priest, don't think of some nerdy guy or a Levite. Don't think of some nerdy guy um, who is just in uh, pouring over books all the time. These guys were seriously buff. They were uh, working with uh, bronze shovels. They were butchering oxen. Um, these dudes would have been, I mean, some... Some, some serious hunks, sanctified hunks. So anyway, uh, it, it, it says here, verse 46, in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds. 
between Succoth and Zeratin. In other words, all this stuff, the, the pomegranates, the, the, the labors, the, 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 the 12 oxen, the, uh, the shovels, the pots, they were made in clay molds. You know, you used to do that stuff in kindergarten and first grade and Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts making the stuff in molds. All of it was done. Uh, it gives the location there. The, the, keep in mind that the temple to the Jew was uh, an exceedingly important thing. Today, we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we really are. The, the, uh, but at the time, the, the temple was a big, big deal. Every Jew was required to go to the temple three times a year to three feasts. And uh, this would have been wonderful reading uh, to them just to know how um, it was constructed, to at least this Temple of Solomon. Eventually, it's going to be destroyed and rebuilt by, um, in the book of, uh, of Nehemiah, uh, you have that, and, and Ezra, uh, but um, he, but it, they would have loved reading this, and it's just wonderful reading uh, the uh, just the the detail here. Verse forty seven, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles, but because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, uh, with the flowers and lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, uh, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers of pure gold, the hinges of gold, both for the uh, doors of the inner uh, room, for the, the holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. You know, tragically, as I'm reading this, as someone who's read through the Old Testament a, 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 a whole bunch of times um, and taught, taught through the Old Testament before, eventually you'll see this stuff all carted away in various phases by the enemies. They would come in uh, into Jerusalem when um, Israel was in a time of rebellion, and they would look at this stuff and and they're thinking, wow, hinges of gold, ladles of gold, censers of gold. I think we'll have those. And they would be um, carting them away. The temple was not completely destroyed until Nebuchadnezzar shows up in about 300 to 350 years. Verse 51. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Uh, so uh, remember that at the end of David's life, um, he uh, gave Solomon the uh, he gave him the plans for the temple. And not only that, he brought all kinds of gold and furnishings and, and money that would be used uh, for the building of the temple, but some of it was put in uh, into the treasuries of the house of the Lord, sort of a bank. And so that was yet another duty of a, a, of a Levite. Maybe those Levites looked a little bit more booky, uh, different than the ones that would have been butchering and uh, in, in charge of the altar of sacrifice. But um, uh, they put some of the things that David had dedicated and they put it in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Chapter eight. Now, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled um, with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, this is... Um, uh, this is what's going to happen here is essentially a dedication of the, the temple. Uh, so it's built and 
what's really interesting here is the um, the temple had been the the temple had been built had been finished seven months before something something like March or or April, but Solomon waits till September or October to have the uh, to have the dedication. And uh, he waits to the time, it appears, uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three feasts that every Jew was required to go to three times a year, and it celebrated the uh, want the faithfulness of God during the wanderings uh, in the wilderness, the 40-year uh, period they had in the wilderness where they wandered. And for the Feast of Tabernacles, they were required to make little booths, little houses, little playhouses. You could call them playhouses, or more like religious houses, where you would, you would actually um, uh, sleep in at the time, and you would look up through the roofs. The roofs were, were, were made of branches and the stuff, and you could see the stars. So it was a time for them to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. But he, interesting, he waits seven months uh, to the return um, of the, to the, re, uh, rather, he waits seven months um, to dedicate the temple and apparently coinciding with the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. He brings, um, he brings in the people at that time to dedicate it. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the for holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. So the ark had been in sort of a, 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 a makeshift tabernacle. Uh, that they had made, and uh, they were going to move the ark from the tabernacle. It's it's the place of worship in during the time of the wilderness and uh, forty years of wilderness after getting out of Egypt. The place of worship worship was the tabernacle, as it was for four hundred years after that until the building of the temple. It was always um, in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was. In various places, but then the, the tabernacle was a movable temple. It was essentially a tent, a movable tent. But now this is a big transition to a permanent fixture, the temple. And so they brought it up, verse five, and also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. And the cherubim, remember there's two of them. We th think we were in this last week. Uh, enormous angels. Uh, and they were both looking to the mercy seat, and uh, the mercy seat would have been above the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 8, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. So um, this book, First Kings, obviously written prior to the destruction of the temple. Uh, you know, on Tuesday night, I, I do get into uh, some facts that I wouldn't do on a Sunday morning. Uh, the, 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 the skeptics and people who attack the verac veracity of the Bible uh, say, um, are, are of the view that uh, virtually the whole Old Testament was made, was written during the Babylonian exile, 
which is three or 400 years after that. They're in Babylon. They have nothing to do. They're, bo they're borrowing the Bible from Babylonian myths and, and this type of thing. If you, uh, there's volumes and volumes and volumes about things like this uh, in the late 19th century, the higher criticism movement just really began attacking the veracity of the Bible and coming up with theories like this. But, but um, they've, they've been thoroughly debunked. But with, here within um, 1 Kings verse 9, uh, rather ver verse 8 here, so chapter 8, verse 8, it says the poles are there to this day. So if it was written during the Babylonian period, that could not have been the case because by that time the temple was destroyed. I hope you're all following me on that. But um, I always love when I hear uh, it here, they are there to this day, that that word is used, that phrase is used a number of, we've seen it used a number of times. And it's just pointing to the fact that it was, that this Bible uh, was, was, um, was written relatively contemporaneously with the events that happened. Now, Moses did write the book of Genesis, and it wasn't relatively, that wasn't um, relatively contemporaneous to him. But um, most of, or many of the other books here um, were, they're contemporaneous, many of the other history books, rather, they're um, relatively speaking, contemporaneous documents, meaning written roughly um, at the, uh, after the time, um, within a reasonable amount of time, uh, that um, that the events took place, uh, but certainly not all the way into the Babylonian period. Okay, verse nine: Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. I think we already discussed this. Some of you alarm bells will go off there. Hey, what happened to the manna? Because we saw previously, in, I think in the book of Exodus, that some manna was put in the ark. We don't know what happened to it. Maybe the, when the Philistines had taken it, stolen it, uh, during that time of rebellion that we read about in 1 Samuel, they took out the manna. Aaron's rod had also, we remember in the book of Exodus, had been put in it, the rod that bud, uh, his, his, his rod, and that is also gone again. We do not know why they are gone, but they're gone. And it's the two tablets of stone on which are the Ten Commandments, um, which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant, verse, middle of verse 9, with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So uh, this is sometimes called the Shekinah glory where uh, it, you know, what, one of, one of the many, um, many things we teach about the resurrection is that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it was an affirmation that everything Jesus said about himself, everything he taught, everything he did, um, the resurrection was an affirmation that it was all true. This is a, uh, it, uh, this is a, in, in that way, this is a similar thing that's going on in verse 10 and 11. This is the Lord saying, uh, when his when when the Ark of the Covenant uh, goes in to the Holy of Holies, it is the uh, it, it is the the Lord's way of saying, "This is my affirmation. This is my house. This my presence is is here." Um, it, it the the Ark of the Covenant that that box. Uh, inside of which is the, the two tablets of stone, over it is the mercy seat. It does say in Exodus 25, verse 22, that God's that manifestations of God's presence is really there. It's more than, the whole thing is more than just a represent, representation of the, uh, uh, of the presence of God. There was, appeared to have been some visible presence of the Lord 
above the mercy seat. Um, and it says in, in Exodus 25 that God spoke from that place. And so um, when that is put into the temple, when that is set down in place, the glory of the Lord fills the whole temple. It says verse 11, the priest couldn't do anything to minister because the, the glory, it's the kabad, it's the Hebrew word kabad, which means weight. And, and some of you may have had this experience before. You're in time of prayer or worship, and all, the, all of a sudden, just the, 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 um, the presence of the Lord is so strong, it's almost like you're immovable uh, in that way. Well, that happened with the priests here. And verse 12, uh, it says, Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. Verse 14, then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. While all the assembly of Israel was standing, and he said, so he, he turns to the people of Israel. There's many there, probably thousands uh, of people, uh, certainly hundreds well, there's thousands. We're, we're going to find that out when we see the size of the barbecue that he, he's going to do. Uh, but um, it says he turned and he, he blessed the, 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 the whole assembly. And he said, verse 15, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hands, has fulfilled it, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Verse 18, but the Lord said to my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark, and which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so he addresses the assembly, and next he will address the Lord. I understand this is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. In Calvary Chapel, whenever you see a prayer in the Bible, study it. We're going to have a workshop on prayer probably in about a month's time. Uh, and just for me to share what I've learned over the years, some of the things I've learned about prayer, it is so important that you learn how to pray. Not that there's like a, a perfect way to pray or anything like that, because supremely prayer is a conversation with the Lord. Um, but it really teaches us and blesses us on how to, how to intercede for people, how to cry out to God. It says, verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, so this is his prayer. Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above and on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have spoken with your hand. With, rather, with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, <clears throat> now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have 
a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they may walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, uh, again, God promised Israel to have a king on the throne, but there was a qualification. If your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And um, not all of them did. And eventually uh, uh, they, they would be overtaken by the Babylonians uh, we know, however, that the long-term fulfillment of this promise is Jesus Christ reigning on the throne um, on, his on the return of Christ. Um, he will establish a throne and reign for a thousand years. Uh, and so uh, Solomon continues, verse 26, Now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So unlike all the other gods in the world at that time, Jehovah, Yahweh, was not a local god. Um, we'll see later, for example, the Syrians thought that maybe he was a god of the hills and or maybe he was a god of the plains and that's why they got defeated on the plains or uh, again uh, with Israel so well let's try doing it in the hills or vice versa uh, that's they were just speaking their understanding of God was local uh, at this time though it's very clear that God through revealing of himself to the Jewish people was was uh, that wasn't the case at all it says in verse 27, he, he, Solomon says, the heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you, how much less this temple. And so uh, though he is, somehow there was a manifestation appearance of the Lord above the mercy seat, in between the cherubim, in the temple, that of course was not where God was localized to. He, uh, the heavens of heaven uh, can't. Uh, contain him. Verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, meaning God, please hear my prayer, which by the way, that in itself is a, is a great prayer. God, please hear our prayer. Oh Lord, my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. I just ask you who are listening, um, is there do you is there a cry in your heart to the Lord? Uh, do you even know what that means? Um, or are, is your prayer more superficial and external? Is it just reciting things that you've memorized over the time? God wants to hear Calvary Chapel, the cry of your soul. Uh, Solomon says here he says, listen to the cry uh, uh, of my soul. And in the, God wants to hear, uh, hear you from your inner man, your inner woman. We talked last Sunday morning about just the importance of, of, of remembering that what God really cares about is the heart. It's not our external righteousness. Um, it's the heart. What is the cry of your heart? Uh, there, there's one there. I, I, whether you've discovered it or not is another matter. If you're a born-again Christian, there is a cry in your heart. God wants to hear from the depths of your soul. Uh, he, he just doesn't want to, whatever, your boyfriend or girlfriend or some person who you happen to be in love here in the cry of your soul. No, he, Jesus is the lover of our soul, and we need to be the lover of him. And so what is the cry of your heart? Verse 29, listen to uh, verse 29 says, uh, well, previously uh, uh, Solomon said, listen to the cry and the prayer before you, verse 29, so that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, verse 30. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place here in heaven 
your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And so what is he, the, again, we, we, we like to study prayer at Calvary Chapel. Um, and what is he saying here? Well, the last three, at the beginning of this prayer, he's essentially, this is the prayer. Hear me, Lord. Hear me, Lord. Hear me, Lord. Hear, hear me, Lord. That's the cry of his heart. Are you connecting? So that's the cry of your heart. That's one of the cries um, from a human heart is, please hear me, God. Please hear me, God. That That is a kind of, uh, 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 that is an example of the, of, of the cry of, uh, of a human heart, a born-again believer towards the Lord. Now, in the next uh, 10 to 12 verses, he is going to go over um, seven types of prayer requests. And number one is in verse 31. So prayer request number one, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So I think what's happening here in verses 31 and 32, um, it's a little odd because you don't really, at least that I have been able to, to discover, but there's a dispute between a neighbor. They take oaths that, hey, I'm telling the truth. No, I'm telling the truth. And so they actually go to the temple and take an oath before the Lord. And the idea is that God's in charge and, and the, during the judicial process, it's going to come out, um, it, it is going to come out who's telling the truth. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. So important is truth telling that it's his, it's the first, it's the first prayer request. It's about our, our, our nation needs to be a nation of truth tellers, the body of Christ, Calvary Chapel. We need to be a, a church of truth tellers. So important here. Um, and, and that he's literally praying, Lord, please expose the people who are not telling the truth and exalt the people who are truth tellers. Um, good prayer request for us today. The second prayer request, verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. Notice that, um, that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the establishment of the nation of Israel, this would not be the case today, I don't believe. But um, when they lost a battle, it means they there was a sin issue. Apparently, uh, that is what's going on here. Now, today, um, in the new covenant, uh, there may, uh, may be a, uh, some kind of battle that you're in, or your nation may lo lose a battle, or, or, or this kind of thing. Uh, it's not necessarily saying that the, the nation itself is, is, uh, is in sin. The first, the first series of battles in the Civil War um, by the, the Union Army, who were trying to defeat the Confederacy and slavery, the North lost some 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 the the first few uh, battles, and um, it it, uh, it it's just a, 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 we're in a different covenant now. Uh, Israel was a theocracy, which God was using at the time. God is at the uh, top of the pyramid, um, whereas today the nations today. Uh, we're not theocracy, so um, losing a battle, uh, not necessarily an indication that a nation is in sin, but apparently with Israel, that was the case. When your people were defeated because they have sinned, verse 33, against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. A lot of these prayer requests are going to turn, just come down to the very simple point, forgiveness. There is forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. There is something um, in our fallen human nature that just 
um, it, it, it sort of nags our soul. It, it rattles our soul that we can't be forgiven. And we're going to see over and over uh, the example of forgiveness. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and they confess your name and turn from their sins because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, and you may that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given uh, to your people as an inheritance. So same thing, same kind of idea. When there was when the heavens were shut up, it was because Israel was in sin. Now. Uh, again, that he was doing a unique work with his children, Israel. If there's a, <clears throat> if the heavens are are shut up, I don't know. In the United States, we should always be going to the Lord. Always, Lord, is this about us? Not necessarily the case. I believe the Bible teaches that it's a sin issue. But Israel was a different thing. Uh, they were told, "Listen, you will be blessed. You go, Deuteronomy twenty-eight. You go up to Israel." To, to, to the land I'm sending you to, Moses told the children of Israel, you're going to be blessed there. The rain's going to come, the, the streams, there's going to be tremendous bounty. But then Deuteronomy 28 also said, but if not, God will shut up the heavens. Um, but there's always forgiveness. There's always forgiveness there. Um, verse 37, when the when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whether plague or whatever sickness there is, and whatever prayer, <clears throat> whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that you may, uh, that they may fear you in all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Another important principle of prayer here. I'm probably not going to get through this whole prayer, but uh, a few more minutes here. So important, verse 38, something to learn here, a principle of prayer. Notice how it says in um, verse 38, when they, it says, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people of Israel, when you each knows the plague of his own heart, the plague, the evil of his own heart, when you go to the Lord, knowing and confessing the evil of your own heart is what it's saying. Um, your prayer will be answered. It, it, precisely what we we're in um, last Sunday morning when we were in the book of Mark, where uh, Jesus says in Mark 7, um, 21, um, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, when we go to the Lord, we always need to remember that we're only there based upon the blood of Jesus because we have a plague in our own hearts. And, and so it's, it's a way of saying, God, you're God. We certainly are not. We don't want to go to the, uh, to the altar of God uh, thinking somehow that we deserve anything or that we performed in a way that God needs to do a, a tit-for-tat type of thing. No, that's uh, God doesn't do tit-for-tats. He, he is a holy God. He, he's a merciful God. We need, and he's an almighty God, and we're sinners. And we always need to go to him, it says in verse 38, knowing the plague of our heart. And when we do this, it says that God will hear, he will forgive, he will give to everyone according to all his ways. Verse 41, moreover, concerning a foreigner, and I love this one, 
Uh, and I think this is, I think this is number set. Um, no, this isn't number seven. We're not there yet. Concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name, verse 42, and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which that foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And so I love this one. Um, it's meaning people that are non-Jews. Uh, in the New Testament, they're called God-fears. Uh, they may not be circumcised yet, but there's been a recognition. They, they may not be converted Jews, but there's a recognition that, wait, this is the, the, the one true God. Naaman would have been an example of that. Naaman the, the Syrian. I believe that's uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, I believe, um, who is converted. <clears throat> I mean, he's not, conver he's not necessarily converted to Judaism, but he, he, he was a convert, con convert to Jehovah. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about good fundamentalism, which is just believing the fundamentals of the Bible, and bad fundamentalism, fundamentalist uh, Christians, believers who who basically see the whole world as a threat, who um, is always treating the world as an enemy, who is trying to uh, not be uh, any part of the world, even though Jesus says in John chapter 17 that all of us are supposed to be in the world, although not of it, but in the world, and in order to what? In order to save the world. Uh, it, um, it, it Notice here the love that God has for the person who is a foreigner, who is, you know, outside of the people. He wants to draw in the nations. Now, the Old Testament is very different than the New Testament in that the there's a central emphasis in the Old, in the New Testament of going out. Last thing, among the last thing Jesus said, Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. And we are just the whole, the book of Acts, which we're supposed to be modeling as, as Christians. It's all about going out, sharing the gospel. Jesus, we've been reading about him sending out the 12th. We'll be reading about him sending out the 70. Go out and share the gospel. There is not that emphasis um, in the New Test uh, in the Old Testament, but there is still the the clearly the foreshadowing and and uh, clear uh, demonstrations uh, throughout the Old Testament that God does care about the nations and and Israel was there so that the nations will begin to see. Okay, wait a second, that nation's different we are, what's up with the God of that nation? Let's go find out. And then this is just talking about in verse 41 um, through uh, 43 about some of these folks will come up and be true converted God fears. And um, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, thing to, to behold God's um, God's God's uh, his heart just for the nations.